you know, I had a period of time where I thought, um, I thought, I just thought, I didn't know if it was climate change was real, but I thought, well, if it is, we're going we, we, we should assume now that it is. And now I can see the evidence that it's, you know, across the spectrum that it's actually happening. Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week, I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Marty Very is CEO of Red Stag Timber, New Zealand's largest timber mill based on Rotorua. He's also a leading voice in the wood industry, actively promoting a government wood procurement policy known as carbon zero construction. He says it will generate employment, grow export revenues and help meet our 2050 emissions target. It's slightly surprising then that Marty is critical of the government's billion tree program, or at least has questions about it, any sceptical that forests by themselves provide the long-term carbon sinks that we all hope for. Marty, welcome to this climate business. Thanks for having me on, Vincent. Uh, Marty, tell us about this uh, carbon zero construction policy. Also, I, I think in, uh, it's previously or has been known as wood first. What, what does that mean? What it basically means is that going forward, what we want to do with the construction of New Zealand buildings is ensure that they're made from carbon neutral materials um, and particularly materials that don't worsen climate change. And obviously that lends itself to wood because it both sequesters carbon dioxide from the atmosphere as the trees are growing, but it also replaces um, steel and concrete, which are massive emitters of climate change um, gases. Um, you know, to concrete and steel together account for about 13% of the, the world's global greenhouse gas emissions. And, um, you know, if concrete, if all the concrete in the world was a, was a country, it would be the third biggest emitter in the world of climate change gases after steel, uh, after um, the United States and China. So, um, yeah, we want to re- we want to replace those. We want to take this opportunity to to build back green. Um, and in a in a post COVID environment, uh, there's obviously incredible uh, jobs opportunities by supporting New Zealand supply chains with uh, wood products instead of uh, you know that 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 dollar very quickly ending up in the uh, in the bank accounts of cement suppliers from Indonesia or steel suppliers from China. So historically, they've always been complaints or uh, people observing logs sitting at the wharf at Gisborne or in Wellington or, um, you know, anywhere around kind of provincial New Zealand and and wondering about where's that wood going? Why can't we find a processing home for it here, whether it's construction or furniture or or whatever? Uh, is What you're saying is you want to create a, a, a secondary processing manufacturing base to turn all that raw material into something that's got IP and and application. Yeah, yeah. There's a massive opportunity to to take these hundred and twenty dollar per ton logs and turn them into two thousand dollar per cubic meter high value engineered timber products, which um, are cost effective and technically competitive with steel and concrete, um, but also obviously create those jobs in New Zealand and create an export market for those higher value. Products and so, yeah. Based on some work that Deloitte did for us, you know, if we if we could move the market share and the products on the building types that wood is not strong at the moment, 
by 25%, then we could be processing uh, close to 2 million tonnes of, of additional logs. I mean, New Zealand's never, probably never going to process all its logs. We're always going to be exporting logs, so don't worry about that. It's just a question of the more we can process here, the more uh, we can lock up in the, 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 the CO2 for a long-term period of time, um, the more jobs we can create and the higher um, balance of payments uh, improvement we can, we can generate creating export industries and replacing and substituting steel and concrete or steel and cement imports. In the past, the argument against it has been basically an economic one, isn't it, that you've been able to process these logs in a much more economically efficient way in China or Thailand or wherever, then bring it back to finished work or, or semi-finished materials back into New Zealand. But What's changed? Is, is it climate change that has really changed that dynamic now that you're able to put forward an argument that says actually processing them here has real advantages for New Zealand? That's a bit of a work in progress. Um, there's a new thing called harvested wood products, which is an international account, a climate change accounting recognition that um, you can generate credits by processing uh, uh, logs into high value, uh, long life wood products. And so the more New Zealand does of that, the more it can earn these, these harvested wood products credits on the international market. And effectively, they're like an ETS credit that can be traded uh, and generated. So that's actually going to, you know, once the government um, starts incentivising the wood processors to cut uh, more logs for that purpose, then that's, you know, that's, that's the way New Zealand can earn more climate change, climate, you know, um, ETS credits and um, climate change accounting credits uh, internationally. You're, you're getting support for this from, I mean, obviously, I mean, there's an incentive there for you as a processor and as a forester to see a, a higher value product produced. But the Wood First policy, as I understand it, has been adopted by the Rotorua Lakes District. What, what does that mean? What, what have they done with it as a result? Um, they've adopted a fairly loosely worded policy, which is more of an encouragement policy. Um, some buildings go down the wood pathway and some don't. So, similar councils, you know, around the world, there's a lot of them in Australia. In, in, in fact, you know, the state of Tasmania and the states of, West, of Western Australia have also adopt, adopted similar policies. Um, where it's really worked is, a, is countries like, you know, um, like British Columbia, uh, sorry, states like British Columbia, provinces like British Columbia, where they've, they've really mandated that it will be utilised unless there's um, um, technical or cost reasons why not. And so that's really given the market shift and that's their, their, their industry has really developed on the back of more firm wording. And so with the planning with the, with the, with the New Zealand government, if I go back to what, they, what the Labour Party called their Wood First policy in which the other government depart, uh, sorry, which the other parties supported as well uh, that are in the coalition, that um, had a requirement for buildings to be designed and built in wood unless there was a, a, an economic or a technical reason why not. And so we, we're looking forward to that being adopted and we're expecting the government to adopt that and implement it this year, especially now with COVID. The reason being that um, you know, the, 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 the employment multiplier in the forestry and wood processing sector is 2.7 in New Zealand. And so for every job, there's 2.7. You know, so the 38,000 jobs in the sector, um, and so there's over 100,000 people directly and indirectly uh, supported by that dollar getting spent on wood products in New Zealand. And so that's 100,000 jobs. If you, if you say that each job supporting a family of four, then there's 400,000 people 
in New Zealand being supported. And you take RedStag, for example, you know, over half our workforce is iwi. Um, and so if the government's looking for ways to, to support iwi jobs and iwi families in the regions, well, give them a job, help us grow our sector. Um, on, the, on the converse is that if, if, if the government procurement purchases, you know, um, um, products, you know, uh, in, in steel and concrete and cement, well, that money very, very quickly goes off to Asia, as I said, and supports very few jobs. It's, it, it supports some manufacturers and, and um, you know, some concrete makers who utilise that cement in New Zealand, but there's really one or two stages of the of supply chain. Um, and I guess what we're, what we're targeting from this policy that um, the government's going to roll out is a, a shift in market share of 25% for the products that Wood's not strong in now. So if you look at that, there's always going to be demand for steel and concrete. No one's after those jobs. There's no threat to those jobs. They're going to get a massive um, impact from the infrastructure spend, especially the horizontal infrastructure. So we don't have to worry about concrete and steel jobs. Um, and also some of these... You know the, these high-value engineered wood products. They need connections, so there's going to be a need for steel fabricators to pivot and make the connections for the for the big chunky wooden beams and columns and cross-native timber that are going to hold up these buildings. Just bring it down to, to to reality for us. So you know, what does horizontal versus vertical infrastructure mean? Give us a, as the Americans say, give us a for instance. <laughs> for instance, well, vertical is is buildings going up. Horizontal is roads, uh, pipelines, in-ground infrastructure, waterworks, footpaths, right. walkways, bridges. And your point is that it's the vertical really where the wood can apply. So we're talking about the potentially yep. high-rises as, as, yep. as well yep. as yep. that? So wood is being used now um, as, the, as the primary structural material in buildings up to 21 storeys internationally, and uh, there's plans afoot to go f far higher than that. New products um, like cross-laminated timber and glue lamb, LVL, but particularly in the last few years, these, these cross-laminated timber huge panels, which are lightweight, can be sawn off-site and then brought to site for, for very fast assembly, but they're very rigid and very strong, um, and they're very good in earthquakes, obviously, but are much lighter, one-fifth the weight of the other products. So it's, it, it requires less foundation work and that saves on costs and they and they, and they um, they go together very quickly on site. The construction time can be 30% of what a traditional build would be if you're going with a wooden structure, 30% uh, off, I mean. So, um, you know, just faster, faster construction, less transport, less waste, less foundation cost, all amounts to... Uh, equivalent or better costing for wooden buildings compared to steel and concrete. And then if you put in that uh, emissions profile, you're saying that it, that gives it a major advantage, particularly in this um, you know, in this climate change, and then a layer on the employment, and you're saying yep. that there's a real a COVID component as well. So it sounds like a sounds like a win-win. Um, yeah, I'm really curious about... Um, the IP that might be generated. Uh, uh, I know about Scion, for instance, which is the old Forest Research Institute. There, there is a lot of IP generated around timber, which could be applied into biofuels or in new building materials. Is is there a uh, tertiary or you know a, a kind of a level of intellectual property that could be layered on top of this that would generate exports 
not so much as um, products, but as as ideas and science. Yeah, it, I think there's certainly the potential. Um, the if we can create a, a bigger ecosystem of of wood and biomaterials and circular biocircular economy, then people start imagining and inventing and coming up with innovation um, as a result of that larger ecosystem of and that culture of trying to maximise the utilisation of um, of biomass of wooden built of wooden products in all sorts of sorts of items. So I mean, you start, you're already starting to see a lot of you know plates. Forks, knives, cups, um, oh, you know, you name it. It's you know, cars, bikes. Uh, we've got a, bit of, you know, a mountain bike made of made of the wood from our red stag. Mm. Um, it was fabricated in the United States because that's where they do it, not here. But who knows where it's going to go to um, if you can create that culture and innovation from that. I'm curious also about your views on forestry. So uh, to support the secondary and tertiary manufacturing, we're going to need a uh, a forestry base, a, a, a ready supply of raw material. And yet I've read that you're reasonably critical or at least have some questions about the, the Billion Trees program in New Zealand. Why is that? What? Why? I would have thought you'd be an enthusiast for that. I, I'm very supportive of it, but I'm concerned that we don't, everyone's planting billion trees here, billion trees in Australia. There's lots of them around billion tree policies and actions around the world. There's a, there's a United Nations trillion tree program that the United States has also signed up and committed to. And they're all planting these you trees. They always have to do it bigger, don't they? Yeah. And, and some of these ones are going into, you know, a lot of them are going into plantations because you can get more carbon dioxide locked up in a, in a plantation uh, species harvest it and then run another crop over it and then harvest that. You get you actually get a better climate change outcome. Um, but the big problem is everyone's harvest are going to be you know, working on these models to harvest these things and sell them to China. Everyone's wondering, thinking they're going to sell their timber and their logs to China. But at the same time, China's got its own program. It's locked up its own forests and its plan, its stated plan is to be self-sufficient in forestry in the 2030s. So here we are. You know, making short-term decisions about planting billions of trees um, around the world, assuming that we're going to have a customer who's also planning to be self-sufficient. Now, that's that's my concern, and, I, and my concern is if we don't create the demand domestically in New Zealand and around the whole world to to, to for those trees, then those investment plans are going to unravel very quickly. Yep. Explain that uh, carbon profile that you just described, because I think what, if I understood it right, what you're saying is, if a forest can't be harvested, it reduces the effectively the carbon sink capacity of that forest. Can, can you explain that? I, I would, you know, you would think at one level, planting a forest and keeping it alive would it continue to act as a carbon sink? What, what what typically happens uh, in MPI, for example, have got lookup tables. You can see how much a uh, per hectare uh, a radiator or a Douglas fir forest will sequester, and it really packs on the carbon dioxide through you know years ten to ten to thirty. But then it starts to taper off, and after a year fifty, um, if that forest isn't harvested because there's no purchases for those logs, then it actually doesn't actually add add much CO two sequestration to the forestry estate, um, 
And so, you know, the big thing is, big risk is uh, without the demand for those logs by creating, you know, focus, more focus and more procurement policies on timber, they just get left growing. Those forests get left growing to age, you know, 40, 50, and they, well, they could never get harvested. It doesn't help this the CO2 situation. And what, what my concern is, is that, you know, New Zealand in 50 years could be covered in forests that nobody's harvesting. They're densely uh, planted. Um, they're starting to fall down. They're starting to decay. They're not helping CO2 levels. Um, and they're becoming a, a, a beetle infestation risk or a fire risk with, with global warming. And that could jeopardise the whole sector because, you know, you only need a few of these forests to, you know, it's like the Wuhan wet markets and suddenly, you know, these beetles are flying all over and eating all the good forests that are well harvested and well, well, well managed. And so it all comes back to, I guess, just our real focus, I think, in thinking long term and making sure that we're thinking about where those trees are going to go in 30 years' time when those forests are planted and, and, and doing everything we can to cultivate markets for them now and not just assuming China's going to take it. Well, that's a really good point you bring up where they're going to go. One of the criticisms of the forestry sector or the growth of forestry or plantation forests is that it's taking up valuable agricultural land in New Zealand, which uh, is typically a higher employer and has a higher return on investment. Do you have any thought, any responses to the criticisms from, I'm thinking of groups like 50 Shades of Green, for instance, who are really critical of the growth of forestry on agricultural or horticultural land? Yeah, so, well, Science done some really good analysis actually on whether or not it has a higher return on investment. And what they've found is that um, that, uh, that that forestry typically has a higher return on investment than, than dry stock and land, and that's the land that's going into it, dry stock, hill country land. Um, now, obviously, it depends on where logs prices are and where timber prices are and where, where beef and lamb are at at any given time. But across the cycle, they've, they've found now um, that, that it's more cost-effective, more good, got a higher return on investment. Add in the cost of carbon, which is only you know, like $25 a tonne you know, on, on the carbon market now, and the expectation, I expect that to go to 50, to 100 or beyond um, if it's really going to work in the, in, the, in the decades to come. And so you can sort of see why it's very attractive to, to plant trees. And, um, you know, it, it, is, it is concerning, but um, you don't have that continuous employment in the, in, in the valley, so to speak. Um, you've got people coming in as, as groups to, to do certain things at certain times, and then the trees are largely left, you know, for, for a decade or two before they're harvested. So it does change the profile. I can see the concern um, a lot of farmland has gone in in recent years, which was forestry as well. So it's actually swinging back the other way. And, and um, you know, I think people need to remember that it's it's probably just going, just balancing itself itself out. It's, some of the CNI went into went into dairy. You know, a lot of a lot of the CNI went into dairy. You know, in the last decade or so. What and, CNI? Yeah, uh, sorry, the Central North Island. You know, out of trees into dairy, and, and probably that's you know that, that's rational because it's good flat land. But if you've got steep hill country land, which is marginal for, for dry stock, and you know, you've got such fantastic return potential on the carbon side for, um, for forestry, then you can see why, you know, why people are converting across. Does native forestry still exist as an industry in New Zealand? And, and if it doesn't, should it? 
I think it's really hard to get concessions to cut native trees now. I think it is. I think it's possible, particularly after storms. But um, we, we we would encourage it. You know, I mean, I think if you can, if people want to plant tree, plant native forests now, harvest them in fifty or hundred years time with selective harvesting of the stems, um, and they were planted specifically for that, then we should encourage that because you know it's it's an export earner. It locks up carbon dioxide over a slower, longer period of time, and if you can selectively harvest high value stems. Then uh, I think that's a great a, a, a great solution. Because there are quite a few people I think who love the idea of, particularly on uh, marginal land, returning to uh, you know this rewilding movement of returning land to um, its native or its original state. Um, that's hard on productive land, right? Because the only return, apart from the joy it might give you in your heart, um, is is what carbon credits. Perhaps ecotourism, carbon credits, ecotourism. Obviously, the one that you know is getting a lot of the attention at the moment is manuka, and so the manuka honeys, you know, trees are getting getting planted now. That's that's a that's that's good. That creates jobs and export earnings right the way through the growth, you know, of those trees. It, I think eventually, you, you, you because of the birds bringing the seeds of the of the of the taller forests, and you know, in a hundred years' time, um, I'm not sure how much. You know, manuka's surviving underneath those bigger, you know, um, forests that, that grow over the top in due course, and inevitably in, New Ze- in most case, in most areas in New Zealand. But certainly in the you know in the next hundred years, um, manuka farming, you know, uh, with native forestry is a good plan. What's been your own journey to get to this point? I, I think that you, I knew you years ago as a publisher. How did you end up as a? As a forester, stomping around in gumboots and wielding a chainsaw, it's quite a change. Yeah, back in 2003 when the Central North Island Forestry Partnership was in receivership, uh, my father and I purchased the Waipa Sawmill, which was set up as receivers under the Red Stag Timber uh, brand, and Harvard University's endowment fund bought the Kaingaroa Forest, and we had a 10-year log supply contract in place, and so they specialised in forest growing, and we we specialised with the uh, with the team there in um, in wood processing, and we just basically reinvested and reinvested for many many years in creating you know what's now the the highest capacity um, sawmill in the southern hemisphere, and um, but it took you know a fantastic amount of work from an incredible team there to 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 sort of turn what was a reasonably run down mill, but with a very you know, a good management team and a good location into the leader in Australasia and probably if you know across the one of the leading sawmill companies in the world. And your journey into sustainability or at least into understanding climate change, when did that begin for you? I guess I've sort of noticed in the last twenty years that the weather patterns are changing and you you quite you can be quite tuned into that. You're starting to see you know, a little more easterlies and, and, and you start to go, okay, things are changing and things are getting warmer. You know, we just had this this May. It feels like it's been, you know, what March used to feel like. And um, you start you, to... You, you managed to um, get in the water? <laughs> yeah, much more. Um, well, you know, when you're not busy, but uh, with kids and work. But uh, so, you, 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 you know, we're quite tuned into to, into seeing changes and you start to see, you know, like the wildfires in Australia and you start to hear about, you know, everything moving forward, you know, seasons moving forward, grape picking seasons in France moving forward. Um, and, and 
you know, the, the, all the old gore stuff, you start to sort of look at this and go, actually, you know, this, this, this is more than a coincidence. It's more than a media beat up. It's more than, you know, scientists looking for a handout to research something. Things are starting to change here and we've got to take it seriously. And, you know, I had a period of time where I thought, um, I thought, I thought I didn't know if it was climate change was real, but I thought, well, if it is, we're going to, we, we, we should assume now that it is. And now I can see the evidence that it's, you know, across the spectrum that it's actually happening. And in some ways you're in the perfect position to offer a solution, right? You know, timber and wood, sequestration of carbon, but also this uh, displacement of steel and concrete. Does that give you a sense of optimism? And you know, there must be a sort of, I suppose, an entrepreneurial element to this that gives you uh, a sense of hope? Well, it gives me a sense of mission, Vincent, in the sense that, um, you know, glob- globally, um, the built environment accounts for over 20% uh, of, the, of the CO2 emissions. Okay, In New Zealand, that's really only about 10%, and, and I can influence um, through through the efforts that I that I make in this area um, to take that ten percent down to you know just a few percent or even you know we can we can make that carbon neutral in New Zealand by twenty thirty if two thirds of the buildings are, are, are wood that currently go into steel and so um, that that's my mission in life you know if, if you know twenty fifty when I turn eighty um, if I've if, if we've if I've you know helped New Zealand do its bit to um, meet the biggest challenge uh, in the world um, doesn't seem it right now, but long term, if, if I've done my bit to lead New Zealand into a uh, into a carbon neutral situation, then I can die die happy. And I mean, on that point, you know, New Zealand's a, people look at New Zealand and go, "We're so small. How can we have an impact?" Yes, we are small in terms of what we emit, but I think our biggest impact could be the the, the leadership we take and um, by being, I guess, that first sheep through the gate and because I know that when we, when our government adopts a wood first or you know, carbon zero construction policy, others around the world will look at that and go, well, that's where it's heading and lobbyists and industry representatives and politicians who want to see that happen, environmentalists, Green Building Council, they'll say, look at what's happening in New Zealand, look what's happening in Tasmania and Western Australia and soon the pressure comes on Australia federally. Okay, and then everyone goes, okay, well, what's happening in Australia and New Zealand? And then the pressure comes on the states. And the states is doing aspects of it in some of their departments now, adopting these same policies. But suddenly you get this rollout. And if we can be the, the little pebble that dropped in the pond and created the waves which actually solve climate change in this in the, you know, in the built environment, then that's New Zealand's impact. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm driven by. That's fantastic. If people want to know more about what you're doing or get in contact with you, how, how do they do that? Uh, they can email me at marty at redstag.co.nz and uh, I'd be happy to tell them more about what we're doing or send them our, uh, our, our analysis and updates of what these policies can do for New Zealand. Fantastic. Marty Very from Redstag, uh, we really appreciate your time and all the best for the next few months as you navigate your way through this tricky time. Thanks, Vincent. Appreciate being on the show. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week. 
enojo orada.